welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship gathering at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Please sit back and enjoy our teaching time now with Lead Pastor John Buckley. So today's title of our message I've entitled Family Turmoil. Now, I think most of us understand about family turmoil. I uh, have had family turmoil as a child. I have two stepdads and two stepmoms, so that can tell you a little bit about my background, and it got confusing to try to share that with other people at times. Uh, You never know in different situations how that's going to work out and what your norm may be compared to somebody else. I was a bus captain. Um, when I was in uh, church in Rockford as a teenager. And I remember this one little girl was on the bus and I asked her what her friend's name was and she told me, I said, oh, and how did the two of you meet? And as if this was a natural occurrence, she shared with me, oh, my mama met her mama in jail. Okay. Eight years old, seven years old, that was the world that she lived in. And when turmoil comes, it's kind of various depending upon our family backgrounds. Um, When I got married... Uh, We neglected to have really any kind of marriage mentoring along the way, and we had a lot of conflicts that were unnecessary, not that we still never have conflicts, um, but as we've gone through and hopefully on the sanctification journey of being a Christian as well as cherishing my, my spouse and vice versa more, have learned what is important and what isn't, but there's definitely been turmoil there. As a parent, as those of you that are here understand, there is not a specific manual that you get And uh, most guys wouldn't read it anyways, but you get the manual with your children know exactly what to do on those situations. And uh, there's been many things that as a father, I wish I would have done differently. My boys had a, as I said before, my boys, especially a couple of them, knew where my buttons were, and they didn't just push them, they jumped up and down on them. So Now, Amber has always been an angel, right? So, uh, yes, she's the only child of mine that's here, so I have to make sure I cover that base. Uh, But turmoil, it comes, and family turmoil is something every single one of us, we could sit in a circle and go, hey, let's talk about some of the turmoils we had, and some of us have to laugh about some of the situations because they're just so tragic. If we don't, it just could bring us to tears. Other ones are amazing. Some of you have incredible godly heritages, and we have great family stories that we can share about trips taken and, and advice given and life lived together. But even in the best of families, there's turmoil, turmoil that takes place. So here we enter into the second half of seeing a family under turmoil, especially when it comes to Saul, and how that bled over into the whole nation of Israel as you see the way that Saul reacts into the situations that takes place. Now, Saul hates David, but everyone else seems to love David. You see that over and over again. This group loved David, and this group loved David, and this group loved David. Excuse me, David. And as we enter the second half of this chapter, we see that this family turmoil erupts at a brand new level, level in Saul's situation. Because what we leave off of in chapter 17, before last week's message, we see, I'm sorry, chapter 16, we see David and, and Jonathan loving each other. You see the, the compatibility, the knit hearts. We talked about friendship at the first part of this chapter. But as Saul becomes more and more manipulative, we see that David becomes more and more successful. And we see in this passage here the downward progression of a life that's focused on what hatred and bitterness can do. 
And I just want to encourage all of us to hear to make sure that we look in our own lives and ask ourselves a question. And that is, as you evaluate your life, are there any areas that you have allowed that root of bitterness in your heart? Because I'm telling you that it can lead to tragic things, not for everybody else, as we'll see in Saul's life, although it affected others, but you see the huge way that it affected Saul and his family and those closest to him. So verse number 17 is where we're going to start at today. The first point of our message today is a promise not kept, a promise not kept. Verse 17, then Saul said to David, here's my elder daughter Merab. I'll give her to you for a wife, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let me, excuse me, let my, not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at that time, when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, for a wife. So we see the treachery of a father. And, and Saul here moves from his open attacks. Now, some of us might say to ourselves, wait a minute, David threw a spear twice at you. Don't you understand that Saul hates you? And really, if you put yourself in David's shoes, though, Saul's sending a lot of mixed signals, and we all know that he had that, that spirit that was oppressive on him. And I'm, my guess is, from what we see here, is that David thought the throwing of the spear was more the actions of a madman who was struggling than he was a personal attack against him. And so when you open this up and read this, we shouldn't be shocked to see that David saw the best because, again, then he goes, hey, I'm going to give you my, my daughter to be a wife. Well, you don't do that if this guy's your enemy. At least that's not the way normal people think. But we find that Saul's version of normal is not what the Bible would explain as what normal is. That's for sure. So it's not a crazy thing to see this. So Saul takes his daughter. It shows you the progression, the digression, excuse me, of Saul's situation. Now, we can go back in history and you can see that there was alliances made with wives and, and we've seen enough movies, excuse me, daughters, where you see alliances of kingdoms and it wasn't always the choice of the son or the daughter in that situation. But we're talking about now not every nation, we're talking about the Israelite nation who had a different set of principles to live their life on. And Saul still said, hey, my daughter is dispensable, I can use her to manipulate David and put him in a position where now that I can't co Excuse me, now that I'm not going to openly throw the spear, because you do it a couple more times and people start to ask questions. But if the Philistines kill him, then everything changes. And before we're too condemnatory of Saul, just look at our news feeds and see the horrific things that you see parents do to their kids. Now, as a Christian, we should, above anybody else, be committed in making sure that we live biblically, not culturally. And we need to understand that there's many things this culture does that are not within the frameworks of the scripture. David, excuse me, Saul, in this situation, did something that the scriptures would claim, plainly teach are not the right way to father your daughter, and yet he gave his daughter, in this situation, just for a manipulative step that he could take. 
I encourage you to look at your heart and ask yourself, are there areas of your life that you're using a family member or a situation to be manipulating so that you can get your way in a certain area? Oh, I know we can all think of somebody else out there that does that. But no, look at your heart and at your life and at your intents before we poke too bony of a finger in Saul's face. But we do see that treachery of a father take place there. If Saul uses his own daughter, who means, by the way, her name, compensation or substitute, ironically, to try to kill David, maybe not outright, but to trap him. But then we see the humility of a king. Now, David, you think of it, David knows that he's the anointed king. He could have very easily said, well, hey, I'm the anointed king. Man, it would only make sense that I'd be able to marry one of the king's daughters. I mean, after all, I'm going to be running this joint one of these days. But he didn't. Because he knew that God had a plan and God had a timetable that he was not privy to. And man, when I hear that, it strikes at my heart because I know that God has a plan, but then John has a plan. And a lot of times I invite God to be a part of my plan, but I ignore God's plan. And then I get frustrated when God doesn't fulfill my plan, what is not always his plan. But Lord, now why did you do this? Why wouldn't you do this? Why did you allow this to happen? Why didn't you allow this to happen? And there's this conflict and this turmoil that takes place, and it's a lot of times because John has a plan that's not been what God has for me. And I love that David we see here as a king shows humility and views where he's at right then and doesn't try to live on where he will be, understanding that God's got a timetable involved in all of it. Folks, if we could stop for a little bit in our busy world and go, wait a minute, do we submit ourselves to God's plan? Do we have the humility to be able to do that? Even when it seems to run counter to what we want to do, go back to scripture. In all that we do, not just the convenient stuff, because God has this plan for your life, and he's got it laid out in his word, and then he puts other believers around you to endorse it, puts you in church, and puts those structures around you. He's got this amazing thing, so approach it the way David did. Hey, what's he say here? Well, we read the verses. He says, who am I to be a part of the king's family? You realize where I come from. I'm, I'm kind of one of the, the uh, left out ones, the runt of the litter, so to speak, of the Israelite nation. You sure you want to do this? And then we don't know why. And I've done all kinds of commentaries and there's lots of speculation. But you're kind of going along, catching steam here, and then all of a sudden it goes, oh, and by the way, Saul gave his daughter to somebody else anyways. It's like, where did that come from? Now, we, could, we can speculate. Well, did Saul do that to kind of rub it in David's face to go, ah, 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 ah? Did Saul do that because he needed to build a different alliance? We don't know. That's all speculation. But it's a weird situation and all of a sudden it's not there. And if you want to research it, I encourage you to do that. I'll, I'll eagerly await your results. A promise not kept, the treasury of a father, the humility of a king. The next thing we see is a pawn in the game, verse 20 through 23. A pawn in the game. Then Saul sent messengers to date, take David. And when they saw, I'm sorry, that would be in chapter 19. No wonder it threw me off. I'm like, wait a minute, I did not study that. <clears throat> but it seemed vaguely familiar to me. Let me go back to verse 20 in chapter 18. That would help us all. Uh, in chapter 18 and verse number 20, the Bible says this. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. 
And Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and have no reputation. So we see the love snare plan, as I call it. The love snare plan. See, now Merab marries, but Saul gets wind that his daughter Michael really loves David, genuinely. Merab, you never hear that. So you can assume it's probably an arranged situation. So Saul plots a whole, hatches a whole new plan. And see, Saul first uses his daughter Merab, and now he's willing to use Michael and put her into a marriage that he forces upon her again so that he can create an opportunity for David to be taken out of the game. And as you evaluate and look at that, it's amazing again how we can take advantage of the goodness of other people to try to take and get our plan hatched. Instead of Saul going, oh, this is a wonderful thing and I want to nurture this in the right way, he goes, oh, look at here. Michael loves David. Great, I can take advantage of this situation and to turn what is good and beautiful into a part of his devious plan that he has. But we also see here that there's a weakness that's revealed. See, Paul, Saul was preparing David for the request that would put him in harm's way in just the next section of verses we'll read. But his humility, although it was honorable, it also showed a weakness as Saul knew that David really wanted to marry Michael. So he used the opportunity to try to throw out in front of him a trap or a plan. And David crossed a line in his humility even to think that I'll do whatever it takes or whatever the king asked me to do. Now was that because he wanted, as we see the first part, in fact, let's read that again. Go back with me to the first part of chapter 18, that first uh, where, Paul, where Saul lays out for him that he wants him to marry Merib in verse number um, Let's see here, verse 17. Then Saul said, here's my elder daughter. I'll give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant. He wants him to be a soldier for him. For Saul thought, let not my hand go against him, but the hand of the Philistines. What was David's response? Verse 18. And David, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan, that I should be son-in-law? So the first one is, my family's not worthy. Now, drop with me into verse number 22. Um, verse 23, excuse me. And Saul's servant spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law that I am a poor man and I have no reputation? So he goes from the family dynamic now to me. I, I'm not, who am I to marry? Not just who am I for my family, but who am I personally? I don't have a reputation. I don't have anything. I'm poor. I don't have anything to offer. And there was the catch that Saul knew he could now manipulate he saw the fears of David. He saw the struggles of David. And he decided to act on that in a devious way. And we see that in verse number 24. A plan is put into motion. So we see a promise isn't kept, the treachery of a father, the humility of a king, a pawn in the game, the love snare plan, and the weakness revealed. And now we see a plan that's put into motion. Verse 24. And the Bible says this. And it says, And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, This shall you say to David. 
The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now let me just stop for a minute. First of all, the bride price. Anytime in the Old Testament times you wanted a bride, they call them a dowry at times, you've heard that, you would offer something, animals or gold or something, there'd be a price in order. And depending upon what station in life that person was, you were going to give a lot more the higher the station was. Now, I know it sounds disgusting when you think of what he asked. And it was disgusting. And it wasn't uncommon, unfortunately, back in those days that when you would kill an enemy that you would have a part of their body, whether the Assyrians would chop off heads, the Egyptians would chop off hands, different, again, these are tribes that were more pagan and they would do these kinds of things as their way of counting and and trophies even for the loss. We know that if you go back to the Ninevites, they were known, where Jonah dealt with that, they were known to take their enemies and the, the people that were against them, and they'd put their heads on pikes and line the roads for miles leading up to the capital city that they had there. So this wasn't uncommon, but again, to ask that in this situation, what Saul was saying is, hey, you can't really afford my, my daughter, but I know what you can do, you can fight. And so I want you to go out and kill 100 men. I want you to go out and kill 100 men. Now, why did he do that? Because he knew, first of all, that was going to really tick off the Philistines. And you could say, well, they were always at war. Wasn't there an opportunity? But remember, folks, never allow yourself to buy into the fact that every life is precious in God's eyes. Every life. So we read a lot about a carnage in the New Old Testament, but every life is valuable to God. And Saul was wearing David down and went after an area that he knew he was good at and might take the bait on, thinking, well, if he went in, perhaps, number one, he could just get killed when he was trying to go kill the Philistines in order to get the prize for his daughter. Secondly, he knew that not only by killing them, but by what he did to desecrate their bodies, would even get the ire of the Philistines even greater to want to take out David. So either way, even if he survived this one, he had a big target on his back. A huge target on his back. So, verse 25, then Saul said this. I'm sorry, verse 26. Um, well, let's finish verse 25. Then said Saul, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Verse 26, and when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law before the time that expired. So now, there's an opening there. My tribe isn't worthy, I'm not worthy, I have an opportunity. I have an opportunity. See, this plan succeeds in unexpected ways. So what happened? Verse 27, and David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And so Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. See, now David's violent heart begins to get fueled in a new way. He's not fighting in battle now against an enemy that's an aggressor to protect his homeland and the people that live there. He's doing this to go try to win a prize so that he can get the smile of the king and be a part of the king's household. It was motivated purely by a desire to have the heart of a woman and the smile of a king. And these 200 people, as far as we know, were men. It doesn't say they were women or children. We don't know that, but we would assume that. But we do know that 200 
people lost their lives. This auditorium seats like 225-ish or 250, somewhere in there, people. So that would mean the majority of us, if you look around you, he killed them purely so that the king would allow him to marry his daughter. Every one of these was somebody's son, if it were men, or husband, or grandson, or nephew, or cousin. There was an empty seat at every one of those 200 tables, perhaps even more in certain families, And we see that this plan succeeds in unexpected ways. You see, David had no hesitations that we see here at all in order to take those 200 lives. And his mutilation of the bodies, as I mentioned, although uncommon, added to the violence and the target on his back that he had there. Beware of this, folks, that when you make a plan, evaluate it against God's ultimate plan. You know what we don't see here, which you'll see David later on? We don't see David praying here. We don't see David getting the word of God here. We don't see David asking the prophets or even going to the other spiritual leaders there. We don't see any of that in this situation. David made a decision in the void of what he thought was something he wanted in life. The smile of the king and the hand of the woman. Folks, when we come to decisions in our life, we have to understand this. We've got to stop making them in the void of our own situation and world. We need to be praying to God. We need to be gathering around us, other believers. God put elders around us for a purpose in the church to guide us as we make decisions. He did that. And when we make decisions void of that, we can oftentimes get ourselves in troubling situations. And David did that. There would have been a different way for this to all happen. David bought into this. He didn't have to do this. But I'm sure he had lots of reasons why he had to do it. Well, I mean, after all, the king asked me, how do I say no? I really do like Michael an awful lot. And I already lost one wife. I mean, he promised me one. Certainly I deserve this one. I mean, after all, when do I get my due in life? And what you notice here is this pattern of violence leads to a point, as you read further on in the Bible, when David wanted to build the temple to God who he cherished and loved. If you read the Psalms, you'll see that very apparently. And what did God say to David when he wanted to build the temple? No, because you've been a man of bloodshed and warfare. And that was something David really wanted to do. We kind of pass it by. It's not a big deal. David, if you read the scriptures rather, David deeply desired to be able to build a temple, a permanent dwelling place, a magnificent permanent dwelling place to the God who had done everything to establish the nation of Israel to where it had come. And it was taken away. That was a result that he didn't find for years later. Did it start here? I don't know. But this is the first time that we see David not acting out of the fear of God like he did with the Philistines. Hey, I want the name of God to be exalted. You don't see that here. So Saul's plan, although it didn't come to... David's death, it did succeed in some unexpected ways. Folks, the devil hates your guts and will do anything he possibly can to destroy you and to get you off track, even minutely. And he wears us down. Well, my tribe's not worthy. Well, who am I? I have no reputation. I have an opening. I'm gonna take it. And 200 men died as a result of it. A path is taken, verse 29 and 30. Saul was even more afraid of David. I'm sorry, verse 28. But when Saul saw 
and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Saul becomes an entrenched enemy, we see here. How do we know that? Well, the look at the verb. The verse there, 29, the last part. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Saul's backfired plan only fuels his blatant hatred for David. And he now becomes Saul's obsession to destroy him. And then David becomes a national hero. David, on the other hand, continued to see God at work in his life and success followed him in almost everything that he did. So I have a few things I want you to think about. Family turmoil begins with selfish motives. Family turmoil begins with selfish motives. Do you want to be the husband or wife God's called you to be because he's called you to be it or because you want something from your spouse? Or you want to hold something against your spouse? Or you want to be able to tell other people what a great spouse that you are? Or you want them to see what a great spouse you are? Do you want to be the parent God called you to be so that you can get the praise of somebody else or because you want to be the father or mother that God desires you to be? Or do you want your spouse to come home or interact and say, man, the one most wonderful person in the world you are? We were at the mall the other day. My daughter and I were waiting. For my wife was at the store and this father walks by and he has a little bag that has my daughter informed me it was an expensive makeup place. He had a little bag there, and both of his kids were behind him. They both had Build-A-Bear boxes and no mom in sight. I said, boy, I wonder if he's trying to get brownie points in this situation. But we live life a lot of times to try to get brownie points. And we don't realize how much our worlds are enveloped in selfishness, that everything that we do, we have to check and make sure it's done in the lens and in obedience to God, not so that we can have our agenda excelled. Not that we can have our agenda checked off. Not that we can have our agenda followed through on. Family turmoil begins when we have selfish motives. Kids, parents, moms, dads, husbands, wives, extended family, church members, because family turmoil can even destroy a church, because a church is a family, if we have those selfish motives. But I want to do this, but why won't you? But why can't I? But why does he or she Second thing I want you to think about is family turmoil affects even the innocent. There's always a residual effect. 200 guys lost their life because of the turmoil in Saul's family with David. 200. And your family turmoil affects other people. The choices you make. Well, but, but, but my wife, but my husband, but my kids. No, you can only change what you can change. You let God change everybody else. But family turmoil affects even the innocent. Could be a neighbor, could be a coworker, could be another family member at your church, but it does affect the innocent, those that aren't a part of the initial conflict, but on the edges of it. Family turmoil also establishes generational struggles. It establishes generational struggles. When I was younger, and I still can, I have a, I have a lot of struggles, but one that I have is that when I get really excited and passionate about something, I come at people sometimes rather than come to people. 
And I can have a tendency, even when I preach, I'm sure you know it, I noticed this, that the more excited I get, the louder I can get, which really surprises all of you, I'm sure. And the faster I talk, and I continue to work on that, but as a father, as I've gotten passionate about stuff, and I'm not going to say there weren't times also that I was mad and I came at my kids, but my kids to this day, and even my wife, because they did it for a long time and didn't create that safe place, they immediately put up walls to protect themselves from John's attacks the way they viewed it. Now, I have confessed it before the Lord. I've had brothers in Christ help me and my wife uh, coming alongside of me and helping me. But to this day, my kids especially, their first reaction, if I don't come with the gentle spirit, is walls up. And I believe that this is something I've been working on for a number of years, but there are still results there that affect my relationship with my kids that might take another 10 or 15 years that I have to keep working on this to have discussions with my kids as naturally and as deeply off the bat, at least, as I'd like them to be. Why? Because I allowed my temper and my passions, what can be wrong at times, to be able to affect my relationship. But there's other generational things. Dishonesty can become generational. My parents used to love to tell me when I, a bill collector would call, tell them we're not here. That's well, a white lie. No, it's a lie. So dishonesty can become a part of that. Impurity can be passed down. You go, but they don't know that I'm doing this, but you'll be amazed how those generational demons can be passed down, those struggles. So the best thing you can do, parents, with your kids is to be honest about the things that you've battled with, to help them on their journey. But it's embarrassing. I understand. It's difficult. Yes, it is. But God will be honored and glorified as you help them to navigate with the lessons you've already learned on your life. And by the way, that can happen in a church. I've seen and we read about it, unhealthy church environments where unchecked leadership situations or unchecked sin situations in a church are left go. Well, you know, just let them leave the church or let's push this underneath the, the, the rug. And those things do come to the surface and they affect even the church family environment and those generational struggles can be passed down from generation to generation. So family turmoil establishes generational struggles. So my last thing I want you to think about is how can we live this all out? How do we take this passage written way back here and make it applicable to our lives today? The first thing I want to encourage you to do, which I already challenge you with in communion, is examine your heart. Folks, don't just listen to that. Really listen to it. Examine your, not her, not his, not their. Examine your heart. Stop lying to yourself. Confess sin when it needs to be confessed. Acknowledge weaknesses when they need to be acknowledged. Be the person of God that you need to be and stop worrying about everybody else becoming who they need to be. See, David didn't examine his heart. He got off track a little bit here and Saul allowed the non-examining of his heart to corrupt his whole family. Examine your heart, folks. End it here. What do you mean, end it here? You've got to decide that these things are going to stop with you. If dishonesty or impurity or, or, or vicious com communication or anger has been a part of your family dynamic, your family DNA, decide it's going to stop here because I'm going to be changed. Well, Pastor John, my kids are growing up. It can still change. 
Show them a changed person as you allow the sanctification of God to work in your life and let him do things. There is always hope until the day you close your eyes in death. So end it here. How do I do that, Pastor John? Confess things as sin, get the help that God's put around us to have, and then let the Spirit of God and the Word of God really work in you and stop throwing roadblocks up all the time for them. And then the last thing is establish it right. You're going to end it, you've got to start. So you're not praying, start praying. You're not in the Word, start getting in the Word. You're not sharing the Gospel, start sharing the Gospel. You're not speaking the truth in love, start speaking the truth in love. You don't examine your heart on a regular basis, start examining your heart on a regular basis. You don't have people speaking truth in your life, get people speaking truth into your life. It's all stuff that's laid out in the scriptures. But you can establish it right. So if you end something, you gotta begin something. Otherwise there's a void and the end stuff will creep right back in again. But begin. And let God do this amazing work in your heart. That's what I love most about being a Christian. We're called to be obedient. We're not called to change ourselves. The Spirit of God, the Word of God, they change us. We're called to be obedient. It's amazing how the, 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 the Lord works in our lives if we'll just let him. But we've got so many roadblocks and barriers and excuses set up, and we keep God, so to speak, hostage in a closet in our heart rather than let him have full reign of our lives and being obedient to what he wants us to do. Family turmoil. It's going to happen. But how are you going to deal with it in a biblical way? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for the power. And Lord, as we examine this story, you didn't just randomly put it in here. There's a purpose and a plan behind it. And I pray that today we'll be able not only to understand it better, but to get some nuggets that we can really apply to our lives. I pray that no one will leave here today without some change that they've committed to in their life. Some way to allow your word to really filter itself in for a long-term benefit. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to be your children. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.